Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. This morning is the third installation in our series entitled, This is Who We Are. And it's a series of messages where we're exploring biblically the identity that God desires us as a church to be together to bear. And more specifically for this morning, we're probing what it means to be a people in God who are maturing. So that's kind of the theme for this morning, a people in God who are maturing. So we throw this word around mature and maturity all over the place. And I've entitled this particular message, Drinking the Gift and the Giver. And I'll explain why I've used that metaphor in just a a few moments as we get on in the message But the word maturity is an interesting word because we use it all the time. And I I wondered as I was putting together this, is the measure of maturity in the kingdom, is the measure of the maturity in the church, the same measure that the world talks about for maturity? Where do we find maturity today? So the connecting music this morning, because I'm kind of immature for my age, was Bruce Springsteen's song, Growing Up, which is one of my favorite Springsteen songs. By the way, people see me and think like Springsteen was, was like the big thing when I was a kid. When I was a kid, Springsteen wasn't born. You know, it was like, <laughs> that's not quite true, but, you know. <laughs> but I like music and, and I like good lyricism and, and he always, he always seems to come up with it. But anyway, this song, Growing Up, describes himself as a teenage boy who thinks he's mature. Anybody had a, I said to Nathan, my son, when he was about 17 years old, I said, man, it must be wonderful to know everything. Anyway, so uh, th- do we have the, the lyrics from this at all? I think I put them in the overhead, yeah? Can you put them up? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. We don't have the lyrics. We do have the lyrics. All right. I'll read them. Okay. <laughs> there they are. All right. There's a kid... You know, this is him describing himself as a a teenager. Well, I stood stone-like at midnight, suspended in my masquerade. When I read that, I thought, oh, the masquerades of adolescence, huh? How many here had their masquerades through adolescence? Wow. All right. I love this one. And I combed my hair. It was just right. Ah, the hair of adolescence. You know, all right. I mean, it had to be just, whether it was down to your shoulders, whether it was a man bun, whether it was blopped up with all the stuff you guys put in your hair these days, whatever it was, it had to be just perfect. The masquerade and the adolescent hair. And I commanded the night brigade, and I was open to pain and crossed by the rain, and I walked on a crooked crutch. Oh, the crutches of adolescence, huh? The, 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 the crutch of of acceptability by peer groups, the, the crutches of these days, social media, all those kinds of things that work through adolescence. And then, of course, the, the title of this song, Ooh, Ooh, Growing Up. See, how many of us know that coming of age and growing up into maturity are not necessarily the same thing? Huh? And as much as I loved I'd gone to all my kids and grandkids, as many as I could get to, got one grandkid here, I've gone to all of the celebration. I mean, these days, I mean, you graduate from everything, right? You know, you, you, it's, you know, baby school, middle school, you know, kindergarten, preschool, high school, you know, you, by the time you get to college, who wants to go to graduation? And, and you know, and oh, you graduate in Little League, you graduate in soccer, and everybody gets a, a trophy, right? Because nobody's bad, you know. And I just say, oh. all right. So, so, <laughs> and as much as I'm, I'm aware of all those, of the importance of encouraging kids and grandkids and encouraging other people with all, with all these ceremonies, I'm very aware that all these rites of passage don't necessarily equate to maturity. Yeah. You know, when, when my kid Nathan was 18 years old, I said what I said. And I also said to him when he turned 18, I said, you know, this, this house is not big, big enough for the both of us. I love you, 
but, but your values and my values are two different values. And, and, and he, he did not fight me. I mean, we, we love each other, so there was an ending. And, but here's the deal. Maturity, part of maturity is understanding whether your values work or not. Huh? And when you're 18, it's pretty hard to know that. Huh? And so he went out and did his thing, and I stayed home and did my thing. Today, he's a very successful engineer. He's a fine young man, good kids, and he's going to have to do what I did. Because his kids aren't teenagers yet, you know. So, but see, his immaturity wasn't his fault, mostly. And my immaturity, when I was 18, my goal in life, when I graduated high school, my goal in life was, well, pretty much to, to sit on a, uh, on a beach in New Jersey in the sun and drink warm beer. <laughs> and, and, you know, I didn't know any better. It was that kind of thing. So, okay, so... Here's the deal. Here's the first principle regarding maturity. By, by the way, one of the problems today is that, you know, I just made a little bit of fuss about adolescence and hair and all the rest of the things that go with adolescence. But the, part of the problem today is, is we can extend adolescence into adulthood way too far, yeah? And it's really difficult for parents, yeah? And even for people who are working with youth in the church. All right, so here's the first principle. The measure of maturity is how ordered and wise your life becomes as a a result of your trials and crises. And most of us who are older realize this. Some truth you just have to grow into. And it's, it's, it's the product of living life. And if you're a Christian, it's the product of living life with grace And most of the discipling ministry of Jesus involved putting his disciples into very uncomfortable situations where they had to learn something about how the kingdom increases in their lives. I mean, I don't know if if all of you saw, but Pastor Louis Kotza from South Africa at the joint meeting that we had a few weeks ago preached on, what was it? It was on Jesus in the boat. He put up a picture of Rembrandt. Rembrandt's brilliant painting of all the disciples in the boat. Jesus is slumbering and there's chaos everywhere. Well, what we don't always recognize is that was the first time in the boat. The second time in the boat was when Jesus walked on water. Remember that? And in John's gospel, three gospels describe that. But in John's gospel, it says it in the Greek, it's very, very pronounced. It says that Jesus constrained them to get into the boat. And almost like he forced them to get into the boat. Well, why? Because they remembered what happened last time they were in the boat. Yeah. And I imagine, I'd love to see this play out. When I, when I get into glory, when I get into heaven, I, I love to see this play out. I want to say, play that, play that, that, uh, that, that piece for me. Will you, Lord? I want to see you say to Peter, get in the boat. No, I don't want to. I don't want. Get in the boat. Part of being, that's kind of what happened. But that's what happens to us in life as well. Part of being a disciple of Jesus is hearing him constrain us into situations that are the only way we can possibly grow into maturity. Yeah. And you're all wondering if I'm going to actually drink from this bottle or not. Yeah. Okay. So how many of you know this? Nothing matures you like a positive pregnancy test. Huh? Do you know why that is? It's because children produce adults as much as adults produce children. So I say that again. Children produce adults as much as adults produce children. It's one of the reasons children are important. Now, children make you live for someone other than yourself right from the outset. And it's not, only, it's, it's not the only way to mature, but it's a predominant way in life to mature because immaturity ends when your own ego ends. Immaturity begins when we learn how to live for others. Yeah? And this is why in our text today that we're going to read in just a second, Peter shows us scripturally what it means to be a person who's coming into maturity and growing into maturity by declaring to the church what it means to be a people together 
who are growing into maturity. And there's a reason that Peter approaches it like that. We're reading from the epistle of Peter. Here's the reason. This is huge because we don't recognize this. Your maturity can't be measured by who you are in isolation. It can only be measured by who you are in community. Now, for us Christians, that certainly centers in upon the church. But there are other kinds of community in life that tell us whether you're mature. Because everybody gets to be wonderful if they don't have anybody else to deal with. Yeah? And so when, 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 when Pastor Ian sent me this theme for the text this morning, I thought, well, I'll just go to some motivational book on maturity in the Christian, you know, or a hobnob in some one of the Christian bookstores or online and pick up a book on Christian maturity and do a little bit of self-help thing and give everybody a motivational message. But when I looked at this text that Peter wrote, I was just struck at how developed, how much wordplay, how much thought went into what Peter had to say. I, I, I was at a meeting once and Pastor Rex was there and, and I just said to the other pastors, I said, how can we never pe- preach on the, on the Catholic epistles, which are John, Peter, James, Jude? And, and Rex just said, he said, that's because we, none of us can live up to it. And I thought, that's the truth. They're tough epistles to, to read and to live up to. So I was struck at the depth of what Peter has to say about being a mature people. I was personally challenged, really challenged. Peter's saying that the first condition of Christian maturation, the conditions are these, living in love in community. Yikes. All right. And then a, a process of elimination that has to take place in our lives. So there's a lot of sophisticated word play to this passage. You're going to have to track with me. Is that okay? So it'll be up on the screen, or you can turn on your Bibles or open your Bibles. And we're going to be going to 1 Peter 2.22. And we'll be reading from there. And I'm going to read it, but then I'm going to come right, circle back to it, and I'm going to unpack it. I'm going to really exegete it, which I don't always do, but, but I'm going to do it here because it, on the surface of things, Seems so simplistic, but he's after something very, very, very deep in all of us. Okay, so here's the bare bones reading, beginning in 1 Peter 2, 22. Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for... All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk. And by it you may grow up into salvation, grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Okay then, I want to unpack this a little bit. Back to verse 22, circle back. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So Peter begins inciting this passage on growing up into salvation or maturing in the church, he begins by saying that the church is our community, and that's the context with which we mature. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word, the word there is logos, the logos of God. And the logos describes the scriptures. In other words, there's, 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 a, there's a, a, a textbook for life in this thing called the Bible. And he's telling them that. Verse 24, he says, Because all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, and the grass withers and the flower falls. It's the second law of thermodynamics. (laughs) We're all subject to it. My hip hurts this morning. That's the second law of thermodynamics because my golf game was off on Friday. Anyway, it's that kind of deal. I mean... That's part of, of life. There is this, this perishability about it. He says, but, in verse 25, the word. Now, before 
he talks about the word of God being the logos of God. But here he switches. This is the word plate here. He says, but the rhema, but the word, the rhema of the Lord remains forever. In other words, within the scriptures itself, rhema means an active spoken word now. And, and, in, in, and he's saying that in the scriptures, we have this bank of wisdom called the logos. But out of it, there are moments when something in that word becomes active that needs to be lived out in our life now. It's like when you wake up in the morning and when you look in your devotions and you've read this scripture 10 times before and suddenly it grabs you and says, today we're going to learn something about this scripture. You've had that experience. Okay. But the word, the rhema of the Lord remains forever. And this rhema, this word, is the good news that was preached to you. So what God is speaking right now, in other words, there's a dimension of the scriptures, the imperishable good news that God wants us today to take on board that we're reading in in this very passage this morning. I I want us to remember that the chapter division, like you're going to see chapter 2, verse 1, that's not in the Greek. This is one thought from Peter. Okay. So, Peter says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy envy and all slander. And, and it's interesting because when we do our devotions, we have a tendency, because there's so many sins listed in the New Testament, we, we kind of pop over them. Okay, I read that part. Let's go on to, you know, the good part, because we don't want to talk about this stuff. But here's the deal. I, I want to point out that Peter cites these five particular sins. He doesn't go to lust. He doesn't go to drunkenness. He doesn't go to to greed. He doesn't go all those other things. He goes to these five particular conditions that impede our maturity like nothing else does. Huh? And so he says, as a matter of fact, what I like this, grammatically, it seems as if he's saying, put away all malice and deceit, like it's a command, right? But the New American Standard and the other, some other translations, see, it's a, it's a participle. It's not a command. It's not in the imperative in the original language. So the NASB translates it this way. Having already put all away all malice and deceit, etc. And that makes all the difference of the world. Having put all that stuff away, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Okay, well, the longing for the spiritual milk or maturity, as, or the path to maturity, as it were, is realizable then if we rid ourselves of all this junk that he's talking about. And more than that, the word for spiritual, once again, is not paneuma. Some of you know it's a little Greek. It's not the word for spirit, paneuma, but it's rather, it's the word that's derived from logos. It's logikos. Why is it translated? Well, I'll explain that. It's logikos from which we get the word logos. So the NASB and other translations say, long for the milk, of the word. Huh? Long for the milk of the word. Logikos means long for a biblically reasoned and well-ordered life. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 2.12 when he says this is our reasonable worship. Long for the milk of a well-ordered, biblically reasoned life. And that, of course, is spiritual. But what I want to point out to us as charismatics, it's not long for the milk which causes us to shake and fall on the floor. It's the kind of milk that allows us to deal maturely with one another, maturely with our bosses, maturely in our universities, maturely among the Gentiles, so that by seeing us, they see that something is different, which is tough for the world today because the church is not that different. So that by it, you may grow up into salvation Wow, that's interesting. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. So we are to long to taste something. It's this pure worth milk of the word because we've already tasted something else, which is the Lord himself. Huh? And so there's one other dimension of this I want to point out. Aligning with this notion, there is this particular thing Peter is saying. In verse 22, Peter says we've been born again in the past. Past thing. How many have been born again in the past? We raise our hands. But then he says in verse 2, 2, 2, 
or three two, he says, or two two, sorry. In verse two, he says, we need to grow up into salvation, which is a present and a future thing. So there's a sense of, and we, we can develop this in Paul. We don't have time this morning. There's a sense that I am saved, but there's also a sense that I am being saved. And I'm very conscious of that on a daily basis. <laughs> How about y'all? So tasting here is important. We taste of God and we taste of the milk of the word. Tasting is important here. Okay, so maturity, if you put that up, is, a, is tasting the well-ordered life that God gives us when we taste of God himself. In our culture, maturity carries like all these kinds of notions, reaching potential, being in full bloom, prime of life, motivational stuff, maximum growth. What's the army, the army advertisement? Be all that you can be, and the, the offer is maturity. And there's something to say about the military maturing you. One of the reasons that we get to postpone adolescence so late, right, in, at this particular epoch in, in American history is because there's no conscription. And when I was a kid, when I was 18 years old, you either went to college or went to Vietnam, and you matured quickly either way, yeah? But today, you know, you get to, you know, uh, this is going to sound it's a cheap, like a cheap shot, but you do get to play a lot of games until you're 30. <laughs> I know I'm getting my, my granddaughter and, and Paul's granddaughter are ready to walk out right now. All right. <laughs> I am teasing a bit because you can get a scholarship to university for being good at computer games. Did you realize that? Yeah, seriously. Interesting. So in our culture, is that be all you can be, but Peter sees maturity really different. It's involved with imbibing the word of God and the person of God. But then he says it's also this. For Peter, attaining maturity is a process of elimination as well. And so I want to, like, take the next... We got in here. I got in here early today. That's good. I'm not going to keep you late either. So, so rather than glossing over this... And, you know, the nasty, sinful little list that Peter holds forth here. I want to suggest that all the sins that are here are pretty important if we're going to mature in God. Because remember, real biblical maturity has to do with living in community rather than isolation. Look, when I'm in isolation, I am wonderful. I'm good looking. (laughs) I'm not getting older, you know, so... (laughs) But I have a wife, and she reminds me uh, of the reality of our situation. Lord, the woman whom thou hast given me, right? And so, so I call these the five great impediments to maturity. Five ingredients that sour the milk of the word. Five ingredients that sour your spiritual milk. And the first is this, malice, which is a real interesting word. Malice is a desire, whether it's open or secret, to see another count, encounter evil or trouble. And the thing about malice, it's like the lit, litmus test of, of, of all the other stuff. Okay, I, I, the reason that, I, I think that's why Peter puts it first. It's the greatest moral litmus test of other behaviors because it arises from our hearts. It, it has everything to do with our intentions. For example, there are those who make the mistake of thinking that any negative conversation regarding an issue or another person is gossip. That's not true. You realize that. It's not true. Church and life itself can't be lived without discerning and discerning what destructive situations are and what, how they need to be addressed. And the difference between a godly conversation or a godly dialogue or even debate can be discerned by like asking one question. Am I bearing malice? Yeah? You know? Is this thing we're talking about arising from love or arising from good intentions in my heart? Or do I really want to see this character smushed? Yeah? <laughs> I mean, really, you know? Look at the trick questions that the Pharisees and Sadducees asked Jesus all the time, right? I mean, Jesus knew, it says, he knew the intentions of their heart. Their questions weren't real. What they had to ask wasn't real. What they wanted to do was impugn the Lord himself. In some way, 
by getting him to say an answer that would be unpopular. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I don't even have to talk about the political attack ads from the left and from the right. There's absolutely no, no, no desire for truth in any of that. You can't decide from those attack ads, the ads who to vote for. Right? I mean, I, I, I mean, all they do is they, they develop something in the human heart that, that puts you in a tribe, one tribe or another, and takes you away from the real issues. Are you there? They're real issues that need to be considered. They tell you nothing about the people who you're voting for other than what they're accusing them of. And this is both on the right and the left. I mean, there's just nothing there. And so I, I, whenever one of those things comes on, because if you watch the local news, which I, so I, like I get up in the morning, <laughs> there's a commentary. I get up in the morning, usually like around 7.30, I come downstairs and I do, I do my, my devotions 7.30 to 8 personally. And then Trish and I do a long devotion later than that because I'm retired now. And then I turn on the 8 o'clock local news, FMC. And I, the first thing I do is I see today's weather, right? It's the first thing I do. It's like a little sh- thing, Matthew Broderick, I think his name is. You get today's weather because if you wait 15 minutes, you get all the weather that happened last week. Anyway, so, so I, I get today's weather, and then I see, okay, who was shot in Reading? Who was shot in Allentown? Who was shot in Bethlehem? Who was shot in Easton? Who was shot in Monroe County? And then I get the long-range weather, and then I turn the TV off. But in the middle, I get all the political attack ads, yeah? And, and I just hit the bimbo button, you know, right away, because I just can't hear that. Are you there? Now... Here's why that's not useful to any of us. Because Peter's not talking about the world. See, we can't get upset at sinners for sinning. All right? Peter's talking about us. All right? And we can do this stuff, okay? See, malice involves this thing called schadenfreude. Has anybody ever heard the word schadenfreude? No. Anybody? Well, one, two, three, four. Okay. It's a German word. It's interesting. It's a German word which means a secret sense of satisfaction which arises in us from another's misfortune. Of course, I'm the only one who's ever dealt with this. You know, The modern media, for the most part, trades upon, generates and lives to produce schadenfreude in the human soul. It's a marketing tool. But here's what we need to remember. Peter's talking about the church. And how many of us have been around a table in conversation, and you know somebody at the table has the knives out for somebody else rather than their food, you know. And, and you know, they, we get in the conversation, you get sucked in, yeah? And all of a sudden, you know, there's a satisfaction developing in you or me consequent to someone else's misfortune. That's part of malice. Yeah. So Peter has no use for malice. It's, it's a huge, huge litmus test for all the other stuff we kind of go through. So part of my life as a pastor for 40 years has been asking myself, do I bear malice toward anyone? Especially if I've got to do a confrontation, if I've got to, someone's frustrated me. I, I mean, is there anything in me? Because I see in my Savior a Jesus who never bore anyone malice, even on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Does that mean that they were instantly forgiven themselves for the crucifixion of Christ at that moment? No, it doesn't. But it does mean that the sin that was committed toward Jesus had no hold on him. Yeah? Because he bore those who killed him no malice. Now, here's the hard part. We're kind of expected to live like that. Huh? If you have to go to a contractor who you feel like gypped you and have the confrontation with the contractor and you feel like you got taken for a ride, you can't go with malice in your heart. Huh? That's pretty difficult, yeah? Because you're dealing with all kinds of emotions in yourself. If you're a contractor and you feel like your client just took you, (laughs) it's the same thing, you know? I'm just giving typical day-to-day kind of examples, malice. The other thing here is deceit which means to seduce some to realize falsehood 
by distorting the truth. Many of us realize that for a deception to be seductive, there just has to be enough truth in it to take you right down the toilet. Huh? Am I the only one who realizes this? You know, you know, there has to be truth or it won't take you anywhere. All the conspiracy theories, all that. By the way, three, three conspiracy theorists walk into a bar. That can't be a coincidence. It's a joke. <laughs> so the word for deceit, watch this, comes from the Greek word, which means to bait as to bait a trap or to bait a hook if you're fishing. So deceit, as it is used here, does not mean just telling a lie. It means to lead someone into a falsehood by trickery, misinformation, consciously offering a version of the truth. The trademark of deceitful people is that they do tell a truth, but if you ever want to get the whole truth, you have to be prepared for it to come out in installments. (laughs) Well, I I don't want to go after teenagers again, but... (laughs) You know? So, So deceit is different from deception, biblically. Deception is a state of mind that I'm in, but I'm unconscious that what I believe is not true, right? That's why deception throughout the scripture is called a trap or a a snare. Deceit, on the other hand, has to do with consciously misleading others into a falsehood for some other ulterior motive. Uh, uh, usually you fool yourself into, th- when you're doing it, you fool yourself into thinking that what motivates you is more important than the whole truth. Huh? And almost all of the attack ads, again, are, are, are on the margins of deceit. You know, They'll pick out a little bit of a truth about somebody and or pretty soon it, it's, you know, it's, 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 it reads like those, or Tolstoy's War and Peace. So of course, it's, it's tempting to, I don't want to media bash too much, because again, Peter's speaking about the church. Well, we're in the church, we see that. Do you remember Y2K? Yeah. I mean, oh, man. All the prophecies and all the stuff was going to happen. Books were written. Like a couple people sold million, a million books or more on Y2K. And so Y2K came. And why, <laughs> that Denny, Prophet Denny Kramer was here. And somebody from the congregation said, this is before Y2K said, what's going to happen on, you know, on November 31st, you know, 1999? And he said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> Which is the truth, right? But all this stuff in the church, the pressure we were under as elders to tell people to stock up on food. Now, if you want to stock up on food, go do it. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with that. You, know, you may need it for who knows what. But I just had no sense that any of this meant anything except to the people who wrote the book and then made all this money. Really, there was tons of money made on this thing. And then, guess what? This is so charismatic. Guess what? When nothing happened, there was no fallout. Not an ounce of fallout. And I just thought to myself, really? You know, no apologies. No, well, I think I got that wrong. Let me give all this money I made to charity. You know, <laughs> it just didn't happen. Dwayne White, who's going to be speaking at, for Bethlehem, Two, two Fridays, I think. He'll be speaking, and he'll be speaking at Kingdom Life on two Saturdays. Dwayne, Dwayne, Dwayne took his whole family on December 31st, 1999, five of them, and flew to Europe for $100 because no one wanted to take a flight because everything was going to fall apart and they'd die. And so he said, I'll, I'll go. <laughs> Don't take me, take Barabbas. Anyway, I mean, yeah. I, I remember, still there, I remember when I was, well, I have to remember that this is, this is streaming, but I think this is safe. Anyway, so there was a single mom in the church, and, and she was a single mom, and she had a teenage, I'm not picking on teenagers, it just comes up. Anyway, she had a teenage son, and she really sensed that he was watching porn. So she calls and says, Pastor, can you come over and check out my son's computer? And I said, yeah, I'll do that for you. She said, I don't want to do that. I don't want him. So, I, so he was in school, and I came over and checking out his computer. And sure enough, you know, he was watching pornography. And 
after like about five to ten minutes, the Holy Spirit said to me, you are no longer a detective. You are now a sinner. (laughs) Are you there? But the deception was, I was a detective, you know. And and so the Holy Ghost said to me, all right, turn it off and go home and tell Trisha what you did. And I did. Anyway, so, so there is this thing where we can characterize ourselves with just enough truths to take us down the road. I remember a, a young guy, and this was in England, who, who was convinced that, that he was called to be an evangelist in taverns and pubs. And the only problem is the people he was evangelizing ended up evangelizing him more than he evangelized them. Are you there? You know? And that, that's some truth about being in an, an awkward situation and, and being able to, to, you know, display the gospel. But it's interesting how sometimes our hearts fool us as to what we're really after. And that has to do with deceit. Okay, hypocrisy. You guys all know about this one. This is our ability to denounce the failings of another while ignoring the very same failing in ourselves. And this, this is epidemic, so I don't think I need to say a lot about hypocrisy other than, ironically, the sin. It's the sin we see in everybody else, but we don't see it in ourselves. I remember there was a gal a couple of years ago who left the church and was kind of bitter. And I just said, hon, what, you know, what's wrong? And she just said, I said, you're not going anywhere. Well, you're not going to church. She said, everybody in the church is a hypocrite. And I said, that's all you got? You know? <laughs> really? you know, tell me where in life you see otherwise, and I want to go there. You know? So this is a, a prevalent attitude that we can display in ourselves. Next is envy. Envy, this is tricky, because envy is the desire to see someone deprived of what they have because you don't have it. Like, where is my Lamborghini? You know, envy is an interesting sin. See, we confuse it with jealousy, but it's different from jealousy. Jealousy is the passion to have what another has that I believe I'm entitled to. See, God is a jealous God. There's good jealousy. God is a jealous God, and he has a right to be, because if he sees someone deceiving or taking his people, he's jealous for us. Huh? I'm jealous for, for my wife who's sitting right here. In other words, if I see her in jeopardy, you know, I'm entitled to her through covenant. And she's jealous. She's entitled to me through covenant. Are, are you following that? And, and that's an important jealousy. Now, there are jealousies that lead us into sin. There's jealousies that become envy and all of that. Jealousy, it couldn't be okay. But envy is never good. Now, how does envy work in the church? Well, here's how it usually works. It goes to status, gifting, position, office, profile, yeah? Those kinds of things. The need for significance in myself. This individual's getting significance, and I'm not. You know, I'm sitting here being good and loving you, God. And, and, and that individual gets all the profile, which is why, by the way, James says, be not many of you teachers, because you're going to be judged according to what you say doubly. And I have discovered that to be absolutely true. Now, the thing about envy is interesting because it's almost always driven by insecurity. And, and for that reason, it's a species of unbelief. It's a species of faithlessness. And, and I tell you where you see this the most is in insecure pastors. I mean, really. Because the whole evangelical world is in sees themselves as in, compet- in competition for a limited number of saints in a particular area, which is a lie. It's a deception. Are, are you there? So, well, this person's going over to this church, and this person's going, what's wrong with me? And I, 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 you see what I'm saying here? When really, there's enough unsafe people out there to go around for everybody. Isn't that true? So, when I was a younger pastor... I remember uh, I, my, the, the pastor emeritus over at Life Church is Pastor Randy Landis, who's, who's a friend of mine. I love him. He and Mirabel. <clears throat> but somebody called me. This is 30 years ago. Somebody called me one day and said, and I was praying for revival and preaching on revival. It was right before the Toronto thing popped up. 
And, and somebody called me and said, Life Church is, is experiencing absolute revival. You know. Thank you, Jesus. Anyway, so, so I felt this thing rising up in me. Like, like why, why is that happening here, God? You know? And, and I really, it was really interesting. I went through about a half hour. Where to sort out my attitude and say, why am I not rejoicing over that? You know, what, what is the, what is this thing? And it, you know, it was, it was envy. It was envy. And you know, you encounter it in every walk of life. What I'm talking about here, I'm talking about the church. And, and as it turned out, we all had revival. It was a wonderful thing in the, that time. Anyway, I remember I had a, a friend who went to a church up in central Pennsylvania. And it was when Catherine Coleman, does anybody remember Catherine Coleman? Major healing ministry back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in Pittsburgh. As flamboyant and crazy as anybody could be, but, you know, when she prayed for people, they got healed, yeah? So, so my, friend's, my friend's mother had cancer. And so they were in a church up in, in north, north central Pennsylvania. And so they were praying for her. They anointed her. They did all kinds of stuff for her. Finally, they decided, we're going to skip Sunday service and run her down to Pittsburgh, which is where Coleman ministered. And, and so they, the good portion of the congregation was taking her down there for, for her to be prayed for, for healing. And so the pastor, who was a, young, a younger guy like me at the time, was really upset. And, and he said to my friend, he said, why are you taking your mother to Pittsburgh? And, and, you know, God can heal her here. And my friend just said, yeah, except that God's not healing here, but he is healing in Pittsburgh. <laughs> so they took her to Pittsburgh and she got completely healed. <laughs> That's envy, you know. And so it's, it's, it's an interesting sin. It's an interesting thing that kind of keeps us. Last is slander. So slander is speech that seeks to depreciate the worth of your brother or sister in Christ in the eyes of others. And this is a sin where it's so easy to hide what you're doing when you do it. Sometimes you don't even realize that you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. And so gossip is a subtle form of slander. It's, it's for gossip to be gossip. Remember I said the litmus test is malice, right? I mean, if... If I say to my wife, if I say to Tricia, honey, I, I have to go talk. We got to go talk to this couple because I believe there's something going on in that marriage and there might be adultery. We need to go and visit them and see what's cooking here. That's not gossip, right? Because it's coming from a heart of love and concern and so forth. But if I say, hey, you know what? I heard so-and-so is doing this. That's slander, you know, and it's, it's subtle. I can't tell you what role slander plays in evangelical church splits. Huh? You know, I mean, you, you realize I, I, went to, I went to a friend of mine who pastors a Baptist church. And that Baptist church planted two other churches. And, and I said, how did you, this is when I was younger. And I said, how did you do that? That's, you know, your church isn't that old and it's fairly good size. How did you end up doing that? because I'm interested in church planting. And he said, oh, they weren't intentional. They were splits. He said, <laughs> I said, but you're the Southern Baptist Convention. He said, Southern Baptist Convention invented church splits. We, we, he said, we just, call, we just call them plants. <laughs> so, oh man, I got sore. Anyway, so, all right. Slander is a big deal, especially in church splits. Okay, summary. This is where I'm closing up. Maturity, then, is a relative thing. Having to get, you know, look, having to get very old before you become mature is a really high price to pay for maturity. I can testify to that. Getting old and never maturing is a tragedy. And yet, as a pastor for 40 years, I've seen both. The question, however, is how mature are we here at NC4, which... I get to ask that question, having been here for so long. See, the, the measure of maturity at NC4, 
as we've weathered COVID, the political malaise, and now this transition, I feel it's pretty good. I really do. I look at you, and I see, for the most part, a loving congregation. And I want to say, I feel like that needs to be said for you people online. You know, if you're watching online, if you're, you know, this is a good place to come because there's a measure of maturity. You know, come here, we will do you good. We can say that, right? So, but I get to lots of churches because now I'm in an emeritus position and I have a position with our network. And over the course of COVID, over the course of the politics, political malaise, which we're probably going to wade into again over the course of the last three years, I saw so much ugliness in the church come up that it, it surprised me. I didn't think I could be surprised. How, about, how many of you know that all the bad attitude that we saw throughout the, the last two or three years didn't come from COVID? It didn't come from the political situation. It was all there. You see, it, God just said, I'm going to show the church what it's about. And he surfaced it all. And, and it wasn't pretty. But having said that, there's a fresh smell in the air. There's a fresh smell in the air in this church. There's a smell. When, when Paul was his prophecy, and I know when I reference prophecies that came up during worship and you're watching online, Paul Stewart had a prophecy where he saw a bucket that was just had stale water in it and there's a little slime on it. We've all seen those buckets. And the, the gist of the prophecy was God wants to give us new buckets. So everybody's on my bucket list now. Patricia and I in our devotions in the morning. And God wants to fill our new buckets with something new. And when he said that, I felt I had this word. It might be for someone online or someone here this morning. I hear the Lord saying, will you please quit rummaging around in an old dream? I don't know who that's for. Will you please quit rummaging around in an old dream, the Lord is saying, because I have a new dream. For you to dream today. I want to fill you by the Spirit with a new dream today. And don't make the mistake of thinking that the old dream never came to pass because it came to pass in ways that you won't know until you dream the new dream, says the Lord. So I'm putting that out there and I release that word. And if that's for somebody, I just bless it in the name of Jesus. Yeah, that's good. All right. So NC4, Mae West, who seemed to be perpetually useful, youthful, once said, you're never too old to get younger. And I would add to that, you're never too young to get more mature. So my word for NC4 is, NC4 is neither too old to get younger nor too young not to become more mature. And that's what I believe our future holds. That's what the new bucket looks like, says the Lord. Um, so, if everybody could stand and the musicians could come up, and I'm right on time, baby. Hallelujah. <laughs> I like living by the clock because I know what it's like not to. <laughs> Here's what I want to do. There are these five, if you will, things that need to be eliminated. And Peter has them for us. He, he tells us what they are. And I just want to run through them. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. I just want to pray for us as a congregation here at Bethlehem online. I just want to pray for us and ask God to put, put the finger of the Holy Spirit on any of our hearts who just need to make an adjustment, to make a correction, to see something new happen in our lives. Maybe... Maybe even to stop rummaging around in an old dream, yeah? Okay. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus. Father, very simply, we just ask you with all of our hearts, we, we, we really want to be authentic with this, to the extent, Lord, that we're subject to any of these things that need to be manipulated. If we're bearing malice or schadenfreude toward any. Lord, if we're, if, oh boy, if there's deceit, Deceitfulness rummaging around in our hearts. If there's hypocrisy, God, just point it out. Envy, Lord, if we're envious. And if we've been speaking slanderously toward anyone, 
about anyone. Would you just put right now the finger of your Holy Spirit on us? Right now. Anything comes to mind, or even as we leave, we just want to say we repent. We ask you to forgive us. We, Lord, th- these sins are such foibles, so easy to fall into, and we don't even know we're in them. We ask you, God, to forgive us. Not only each of us personally and individually, but here in Bethlehem, each of us as a congregation of saints. We want purity of heart in this church like we've never seen it before. And we release the spirit of first love upon this congregation. That we'd be able to love that you've never loved before. And we thank you for that. We receive it by faith in Jesus' name. If there's anyone online or anyone here who's never had the opportunity to love Jesus as your God and your Lord and your Savior, if you've never said that to him, if you've never asked him to forgive you of your sin, if you've never asked him into your life, you can do that right now. and say a simple prayer and say, Lord, will you come into my life? I want to give my life to you. I want, I want to live a well-ordered life with the milk of the word. Lord, I, I want to be free enjoy the kingdom of God. You can do that right now. If that's you here, I think I just about know everybody here. If that's you here, I'm up here. Please, Trisha will be up here with me. I'd love to pray for you after service. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.